Hey everybody, I'm Mikey and welcome to my podcast, Eclogue One and the Modern Farmer. Now, I don't know where y'all are coming from. Some of you might be classmates, peers, or relatives, farmers, or academics. Perhaps some of you just wound up here. But whatever the case, you clicked on my podcast for one of two reasons. Either you're interested in Virgil's Eclogue poems or you're interested in modern farming. And either way, I probably ought to provide you with some background on Virgil, especially concerning his work and environment. If you already know about him, just bear with me for a minute or two. The podcast, as the title suggests, will be about using his first eclogue poem to gain insight into the mind of the modern farmer. Virgil was an ancient Roman poet born in 70 BC in Mantua. That's about in the middle of the top of the Italy boot. His era of poets focused on polished meter, which is essentially the rhythmic structure of poetry, allusions to other texts, and themes like love and loss. He focused on these themes in three separate works, one being the Eclogues, a series of pastoral poems. Think songs about shepherds. They were probably published around 37 or 38 BC. Now here's where the interesting part comes in. Virgil lived through a series of civil wars which tore the Roman world apart from about 49 BC to 30 BC. Since the Eclogues were published around roughly 38 BC, they're smack dab in the middle of that. Octavian Caesar was in command at the end of 42 BC when he began confiscating land and settling veterans on it. Soon later, Mantua, Virgil's homeland, began losing land. You can only imagine how the shepherds must have felt about that. Now, that struggle is what situates us in the very first Eclogue. In Eclogue 1, two shepherds, Meliboeus and Titurus, dialogue with each other. Titurus has gone to Rome and been emancipated from slavery. He gets to keep his land. Meliboeus, however, has had his land confiscated to be taken by a soldier. You'll see several interesting themes here, especially in the powerful love and sense of loss that Meliboeus has for his land. When reading it over again, I realized that, in a lot of ways, the struggles Meliboeus and Titurus had endured emulated what modern agriculturists have to endure, even though they still own their land. Today, farmers have to struggle to produce if they're to retain their lifestyle, and the government plays an integral role in their industry. Like Meliboeus and Titurus, most farmers love their land, their crops, their animals. They sometimes clash with the government or with higher powers. So when I speak about Eclogue 1 today, remember that not only is it a beautiful poem, but even after 2,000 years, it still has modern relevance. I'll be focusing on lines 26 through 39 of the poem, although I'll probably stray out of that here and there. But since they're the meat of this podcast, I'll read the Latin to you in meter and give you my translation. I'll start with the Latin first. Don't be afraid of pausing, pulling up the Latin online with a quick Google search, and reading along. So here goes. Et quae tanta fuitro mam tibi causa videndi, libertas, quae seiratam in respexit in artem, candidior post quam ton denti barbacadebat, respexit tamen et longo post tempore venit, post quam nos amorulis habet, Galatea reliquit. Nam que fate borenim, dum me Galatea tenebat, nec spes libertatis erat nec cura peculi, quam vis multam eis ex iret victima saeptis, pinguis et ingratae premeretur caseus urbi, non um quam gravis 
ايرد امومه دكسترا رديبات ميرا باركويد مايستا ديوس امرولي وكارس كوي بنديرس وا باتريرس ان اربوري بوما تيتورس هينك ابرات ipsaite titure pinus ipsite fontes ipsaic arbusto vocabant and here's the english starting with melibaeus's question and what was the cause for you seeing rome freedom which looked back on lazy me though late after my beard was rather white and falling off from my cutting it nevertheless it looked back at me and it came after a long time after Amaryllis has me now, and Galatea left me. For, and I confess, while Galatea was clinging to me, there wasn't any hope of freedom or care for my property, although many sacrifices were leaving my pens, and many a cheese was being squeezed for an ungrateful city, and my right hand was never returning home full of gold. I was wondering why you were calling sadly upon the gods, Amaryllis, and why you were letting the apples hang on the trees. Titterus was missing from there. The pines themselves, Sidorus, the springs themselves, the orchards themselves were calling you back. So then, wait a minute. Let the poignancy of Meliboeus' words, Titterus's estrangement from his land, settle for a bit. In Eclogue 1, we see elements of profound struggle and deep emotional attachment to the land. Even after 2,000 years, this is still the persevering attitude among small farmers. As we go forth from here, I'll give you a quick definition of the lifestyle of that small farmer, and why it's the same lifestyle Titerus and Meliboeus lived. Then I'll take a quick look at what, exactly, the relationship between these two fictional farmers speaks about the struggles of contemporary agricultural life. Alrighty then, let's get to it. Titerus and Meliboeus were definitely small farmers. Back in Rome, a farmer might have a flock of goats for milk and meat, a small orchard, that kind of stuff. You can see that in, among other places, lines 34 and 39. Titerus mentions the pinguis caseus in line 34, the cheese that his goats produce. In line 39, the orchard calls him back to the farm. There's no mention of massive herds of cattle or fields bursting with grain that reach all the way to the horizon line. Without the technology we have now, Titerus couldn't handle that quality of farmland. Do it. Picture trying to plow all those acres with a single team of oxen not to mention caring for and harvesting from that land. So since there's no mention of huge lots in Titerus' situation, I don't think I need to discuss large-scale American farming. That's a problem to be tackled another day. And small family farms are everywhere today, but they aren't necessarily where all of our groceries come from. According to the USDA, 66% of dairy sales come from large-scale operations, but 89.7% of farms are small family farms, like Titerus's would have been. These operate less than half of the agricultural and production value in the U.S. They count for only 24% of food production. Not a lot, huh? But you might ask, why draw a comparison with Terrace? Why do we care how many farms are small and how many are family-owned? The point is that these are the farms that struggle the most. The same USDA report mentions that most of those farmers must have other jobs to supplement their farm income. Look back at Titerus' struggle for liberty. He had to go elsewhere for help. In lines 27 and 29, he uses the verb respexit twice, a verb that means looking back. And with that word, Virgil puts emphasis on how Titerus lagged behind and needed help to survive. Freedom literally had to stop 
to turn around and look at him. The phrase longo post tempore in line 29 reflects the time he had to spend plugging along forward, too. And looking back at Titterus's reply to Meliboeus again in lines 34 and 35, think about how it sounds. Pinguiset ingra tai premeretur casseus urbi, non um quam gravis aire domum mihi dextra redivat. The ingratae and urbi are really harsh, grating words because of that growly R sound. You can feel a real sense of bitterness towards his circumstances there. He, like today's farmers, had to muddy his hands and break his back to survive. And what if I told you that there's more to that struggle? Yeah, about a year before I made this podcast, an article came out on the Wall Street Journal predicting an 8.7% fall in farm incomes during 2017. That net farm income will have dropped to half, half of what it was in 2013. The U.S. agricultural economy has been absolutely plummeting. So what is it that drives our small farmers to keep doing what they're doing? It would be easier to, you know, get up and go to work for a bank or join corporate America, maybe. Yeah, sit in a cubicle all day and crunch some numbers, make some bucks. How come children of farm families, 4th gen, 5th gen, don't do that? What drove Titterus onward in his struggle to survive, where his hand in line 35 wasn't coming home with money from that ungrateful city? I think it's because of a certain undefined pastoral intimacy where farmers feel connected to the land. And I know I didn't read the Latin of this earlier, but here's the beginning of the eclogue. Titre tu patulai recubans sub tegmine fagi, silvestrem tenuimus am meditare savena. And I'm skipping a bit here. Tu titre lentus in umbra, formos sam resonare doces amorulida silvas. That's Meliboeus greeting Titerus. He says, Titerus, you lying back under the shade of that spreading beech tree, you're playing music on your tender pipe. You, Titerus, lazy in the shade, you're teaching the woods to echo back of shapely emeralds. Titerus has some sort of command over the forests. He can teach them to speak, or at least Meliboeus thinks he can. So here, he's intimately connected with the scene. He's sitting in it. He's moving it. It's almost like those forests are part of him. I spent a decent amount of time trying to find some sort of citation for what that feeling is, why farmers feel so connected to their land or even that they do, and I'll give you three explanations. Firstly, in my ex personal experience with the forests that my family owns, I wouldn't give them up for the world, but don't take my word for it. Take the words of those fourth gen farmer kids. And I did find one article about people's connection to their land from the 2007 Conference on Empirical Legal Studies. It mentioned a case called Kilo versus the City of New London, the case in which the U.S. government created the concept of eminent domain. It also mentioned, and I quote, the bipartisan and widespread public outrage that followed. Who would want his land ripped out from under him? Well, that's what happened to Meliboeus and all those other farmers during Roman land confiscations. Titerus got away lucky. But then I thought about Titerus a little bit more, and there's a problem with his attitude. Meliboeus comes to him, greets him, says that he's fleeing his fatherland because his government went eminent domain on it. But what does Titerus do? Oh, Meliboeus, Deus nobis haec otia fecit. Oh, Meliboeus, a god made these times of leisure for me. He says, what the heck, Titerus? Where's your humanity? 
One of your shepherd brethren is emigrating, because he's lost what he held so dear. And Meliboeus calls you out for it, too, in lines 38 and 39, Titterus. He says, The pines themselves, Titterus, the springs themselves, these orchards themselves were calling you back. And Amaryllis, his wife, mourns his absence in their home. So why, then, is Titterus the way he is? The man who struggled to be freed from slavery, a man who can move the land with his song, why doesn't he care about it anymore? Christine Perkle, a Virgil scholar, says in an article regarding Eclogue 1 that Titterus has no pastoral voice. I think it's because Titterus, drunk on the dregs of his freedom, has lost touch with the necessity of labor and struggle. And I know I've been harping on these lines quite a lot, but go back to lines 33 through 35 again, where he mentions the sacrifices, the cheese, and his prior lack of money. Every verb there gives him no agency for the labor. Although he must have done those tasks of leading out the lambs for slaughter, pressing cheese, and going to the market. But the verb exiret in line 33 takes the multa victima as its subject. The victims leave on their own. Premeretur in line 34 is in passive voice. He doesn't specify who pressed the cheese. And in line 35, Radibat takes dextra as its subject. His right hand returns from the market. Not him. Titerus has lost his voice because he's been disconnected from his work, his labor. He's still connected to his land, sure. He sings to it. He didn't have it taken from him. But his trees are calling him back home, as Meliboea says. He's falling away from even those. Nevertheless, at the end of the eclogue, Titerus does get his humanity back. He says to Meliboeus, Hic tamenunc me cum poteras requiescere noctem. Here, though, you could rest the night with me. And why does he say so? Meliboeus, just before, gave a beautiful, impassioned speech about the loss of his land that reminds Titerus of why he enjoys lying down under that beech tree. It's because he worked for it. Eclogue 1, although perhaps obscure to a contemporary audience, is a powerful poem about love and loss, about the intimate connection that farmers share with the land. It puts into perspective the reason why, in the midst of struggle, we have fourth-generation farmers and almost 90% of United States farms are small ones owned by families. There is a beauty in labor, a fullness in the toil of the earth. The pains that Titerus and his counterpart go through echo those that today's agriculturists go through on a daily basis, as incomes drop, as equipment breaks, as they spend long hours up at night in lambing season, as they grow harvests that could be struck by blight at any minute. But it's their land, and they love their land, and no one is going to take it from them. I'll close here with the second paragraph creed of the National FFA Organization. It's the largest youth organization in the entire United States of America, promoting over 650,000 students in pursuits of leadership in agriculture. I'm actually an alumnus. But here it is, and as it plays out and as I leave, think about how the creed, written in 1928, reflects those timeless values of pastoral sentiment in the midst of struggle that we see among our own farmers and in Virgil's first eclogue written over 2,000 years ago. I believe that to live and work on a good farm, or to be engaged in other agricultural pursuits, is pleasant as well as challenging. 
for I know the joys and discomforts of agricultural life, and hold an inborn fondness for those associations which, even in hours of discouragement, I cannot deny. Well, thanks for watching. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and perhaps learned something from it. Credit for the background music goes to Michael Sobel on YouTube. See you all later.